Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Air Talk here on Laist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at Laist Official. Austin Cross with you, as always, for another fantastic Friday. Thanks so much for being with us today. Larry's back with Film Week next hour. And coming up, it is Food Friday. And... You know, there are just too many Portuguese restaurants in L.A., said no one, ever. James Beard semifinalists are out. We are chowing down with Best Restaurant nominee, Barra Santos. Think fresh fish, lemon, garlic, endives. That's all ahead. But we start with the weather. Yeah, that was the sound outside the LAist studios. The first of two atmospheric rivers pummeled Southern California yesterday, bringing with it flooding, road closures. And now that second atmospheric river, as we just heard from Suzanne Watley, is coming our way. So let's talk about it with Ariel Cohen, meteorologist in charge of the National Weather Service in Oxnard. Ariel, thank you so much for coming on. Good morning. Well, Ariel, could we just start with some... A recap of what we saw yesterday. Rain was pretty heavy during my morning commute. I'm sure it was for a lot of people. What kind of rainfall did we see across Southern California? Rainfall amounts yesterday with the first round were on the order of one to three inches in many locations. However, portions of southeast Santa Barbara County into Ventura County, as well as in the Rancho Palos Verdes area and also into Long Beach, got a little bit more on the order of three to locally five inches. And this created some pretty significant ponding on roads as well as flooding uh, with some very significant flooding in portions of the Long Beach area. What about as far as snowfall? I understand we have some snow-capped mountains around these parts now. Right. Snow levels with the system fell to around four to 5,000 feet, producing uh, several inches of snow at the highest elevations and some very, very dangerous travel conditions as well. So as I mentioned, more rain is on the way. I hear that this could be the big one. Can you give us a sense of what to expect? So if you think about the totals that we had just the other day, right. uh, with that first round, double them for this next round. And it's going to be quite widespread. We're talking about three to six inches of rain and uh, many of the lower elevations with upwards of six to 12 inches over the mountains and foothills across Southern California. This has the potential to create a very life-threatening, very damaging situation across Southern California. It's a very volatile setup coming up with this next strong atmospheric river system. Gosh, I mean, so just to, to reiterate, this is a storm that has some potentially... Uh, dangerous outcomes. Uh, Could you talk to us about some of the areas that you're keeping an eye on right now as far as uh, most affected by heavy rainfall? Absolutely. We're really keying in on areas from southern Santa Barbara County, including the Santa Barbara area, through central and southern Ventura County, L.A. County, and even points southward 
where we're going to be looking for, again, three to six inches of rain uh, to create some very damaging flooding outcomes. You know, the system doesn't have the highest degree of certainty, and we could have quite a bit of variability from point to point in terms of rainfall amounts. However, now is the time to prepare for a reasonable worst-case scenario. Things could end up a little bit drier, but there's the potential for things to be quite ugly overall. And we're talking about not only significant flooding, potentially entering homes and businesses, also significant uh, rock slides, mudslides, debris flows over the mountains, through canyons and passes. And uh, also want to mention, again, you know, several inches to feet of snow possible above six to 7,000 feet elevation. Um, you know, along the coastal areas, we're looking at uh, very large waves, battering waves to potentially spill over, creating some coastal flooding and uh, potentially deadly rip currents and very high surf. So it's a time to stay away from the beaches. You know, this is something you want to be preparing for in advance. Again, hope that it ends up being on the drier side, and, and that's certainly a possibility. But there's also a reasonable worst-case scenario to prepare for of significant damage and flooding. You know, we can always talk hope, but let's talk about preparation, Ariel Cohen at the National Weather Service. What kind of prep are you talking about when you say that people should be prepared? What are you thinking? If you have travel plans across the area, now is the time to come up with an alternative plan. If you're able to avoid travel, if at all possible, uh, that, that needs to happen because, again, you know, we have a lot of low water crossings over the area, low-lying spots, and you don't want to be out in the roads. Uh, when we're having this flooding. Um, at this point, if you're in a low-lying location that's prone to getting flooding, setting up sandbags or other protective barriers to prevent the entry of water into your, your location, your businesses, your homes, you know, now is the time to start getting those, those, those preparations already in order. Make sure that you have multiple ways to receive uh, life-saving weather information from the National Weather Service as we're looking at the potential for watches and warnings uh, with this system. And definitely, if you're in a vulnerable location, be listening to local law enforcement, emergency management, and heed their advice when it comes to evacuation. So if that's a possibility in your area, um, be already preparing with uh, multiple days of clothes, medication, food, water, uh, in case you end up getting displaced. Again, we're not saying it's going to happen, Definitely, but the possibility exists, and it's much more uh, streamlined to get to being prepared when you take those steps ahead of time. Ariel Cohen, we have about 30 seconds left, but one of our producers raised this question at the meeting, so I have to ask, because I've driven in the rain yesterday. Sometimes you don't always see the bottom of a puddle. You hope that it's there, but if a person does get caught in flooded water, this could be anything from more than a foot on up. What's the protocol there? Turn around, don't drown. Don't ever drive through flooded roadways. If you see a flooded roadway, it's not worth it to drive through. That's Ariel Cohen, meteorologist in charge at the National Weather Service in Oxnard. Ariel, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks a lot. All right, let's check in on the economy and some encouraging numbers from the Labor Department out this morning. The U.S. added 353,000 jobs in January, while the unemployment rate held at about 3.7%. That means, contrary to past speculation, the labor market 
not yet cooling. And that's not the only positive economic indicator. Overall, post-pandemic, the U.S. economy has rocketed past other wealthy nations. So at this point, you might ask yourself, how did we get here? And what's made our post-pandemic economic recovery so strong? What can we even hope for in the future? Let's get some answers from Milken Institute Chief Economist Bill Lee. Bill, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Austin. That's You're a... right. The U.S. economy is really pumping like crazy, and uh, let's talk about why. I mean, I love to see it, honestly. But first impressions on these numbers, these uh, jobs numbers, 353,000, what are you thinking when you see that? Well, I, I, you know, most economists are thinking that we're going to get a number like 185,000, um, and maybe the unemployment rate will start creeping up. And we got exactly the opposite. Uh, we got you know, a huge increase, and what's great about this increase is that a lot of it is in the private sector and it's in the high-paying business services sector. Uh, it, it was up until about the middle of this year, um, uh, and even later toward uh, the end of this year, most of the gains in employment were in the leisure and hospitality sector, where a lot of the jobs created were relatively lower wages. But this, what we're finding is that um, healthcare uh, and, and business sector seem to be pumping um, pretty strongly which suggests that the employment gains are going to be in really very high-quality jobs. Talking right now with Billy, chief economist of the Milken Institute. Looking locally, is there any data to tell us how Southern California is faring overall when it comes to the employment picture? So I think California is such a mixed picture, um, and you know we still have a lot of traditional manufacturing, and unfortunately the manufacturing sector is not doing well, uh, in part because the global economy has uh, shifted so much of its uh, production of overseas. Um, but in terms of the service sector, where you know most of the people who are living uh, here are, are employed, uh, leisure, hospitality, and and the entertainment sector is really doing very very well. Um, and I think the future job growth is going to be in places where I think um, people who have the skill set to be able to do a, a variety of jobs, but helped by artificial intelligence, will be very much in demand. One unfortunate thing is that a lot of the layoffs that are taking place are in a lot of these high-tech sectors. So you might ask, gee, you just told me that uh, you know, if I were right. skilled in working with AI, right. uh, I, I'm doing quite well. Well, AI, it, it seems to be spotty in how it's being introduced. And a lot of people are, are using AI as you know, in form of helping them edit and helping them uh, uh, word things. So a lot of writers who are very skillful at, at crafting stuff are finding that they're being replaced by ChatGPT. Uh, so, so even though you're very skilled at doing something, you've been doing it well for you know decades. Uh, you might find that employers are trying to find a cheaper way out. Um, so, the best thing you can do as a writer or, or someone who is a professional using uh, words um, is to learn how to use ChatGPT to supplement your skills. And and I think you'll find that you can offer a lot more services um, at a lower cost. And that's what employers are looking for to be able to do more and, and, and pay less. Billy, obviously skilled people doing well, which in some ways, you know, you can look at it and say, yeah, of course, I could totally see that. I don't want to overlook, of course, there might be a different economic reality for people who may be, you know, the non-college educated, the people who are, are working in other sectors. Are they in this in some ways ties into the election. So I think it's worth asking, but are some of those people experiencing a different economy than others? We definitely have a, a, a dual economy uh, in the United States. There are those who have the skills and are in high demand. Um, but, you know, surprisingly, uh, it's not necessarily the blue-collar worker that's going to be uh, worse off. 
Uh, I've been calling the upcoming recession, if we were to have one, a white-collar recession because AI and a lot of technology is being used to, to substitute mm-hmm. for people in the lower white-collar working, you know, the, the, the accounting clerks, the guys who prepare data uh, and, not, and, and prepare the data for the analysts to use. Those people are being replaced by technology. But if you're thinking about the Amazon worker these days, uh, the Amazon worker is no longer the guy driving the forklift and, and with, with brawny muscles. It's the guy able to operate the computer console and robotics and to be able to, to, to be comfortable in an automated warehouse. Those, I think, are the kind of skills that are being uh, looked for uh, all over. So the ability to integrate with technology, which means the education level is really higher uh, for everybody. Um, and I think the, the one thing that we can all do is to, to, to improve our skills, and that's where government comes in. Uh, the, the, you know, the, one of the, the largest categories of employment has been state and local governments, and a lot of that has been in our schools. And the key here is to have our politicians be accountable for the kind of curriculum that's being put in place. We're spending a lot of money on education, especially in L.A., uh, and you ask yourself, are these kids being prepared for 21st century jobs, or are they being prepared for the old-style 20th century type jobs, especially the white-collar and fields. I think that's where we need to hold people accountable at the state and local level. And we have to say, ask our educators, let's see the results. Are the kids getting jobs that they want or, or are they just being priced out by machines? Talking right now with Billy, I mean, it's still wild to me that uh, you talk of a potential white collar recession in the future. And you know, at the same time that people might be losing jobs, the stock market might be looking great if you have a fund that has a, a Microsoft in it or an NVIDIA in it or any of the, the stocks that could be leading toward AI. Uh, you might be seeing really great returns on one end, but then you're also experiencing uh, a very uh, challenging economic future on the other. I want to ask you really quickly before we let you go about this post-pandemic recovery. The U.S. GDP is outstripping Europe, U.K., China. I've read one theory that a lot of people during the pandemic in America started businesses. Now uh, they need employees. Now those businesses are growing stronger. Uh, That's one theory. But why is the U.S. overall uh, continuing to recover at a much faster clip? If you go back to the time even before COVID, the U.S. has been the bright star in the global economy in terms of innovation. Um, and, and capital has flowed to where it can find the highest rates of return, which is tied to innovation and technology. And that's the United States. Um, and during COVID, what we found was that the technology was uh, being used by companies to, to be able to change their business models to adapt for the COVID environment. A lot more remote working, a lot more individuals were saying, hey, I've got these opportunities that I can actually make use of. I can, I can start remote kitchens and ghost kitchens where I can do deliveries uh, instead of having to pay these high prices for uh, uh, you know, restaurant locations. Those kind of innovative business models, not necessarily just technology, but also creative thinking is what allowed the U.S. to really pull ahead of everybody else and the flexibility to be able to do that. And one thing that has held many sectors back and many cities back has been a lot of regulatory red tape, which COVID allowed us to cut through. uh, And and the the key for future success is to make sure the regulatory red tape doesn't come back. Uh, And and I think um, going forward, what we can do in terms of the political cycle is to ask the new policy, wherever you are voting, whether it's Republican or Democrat, what are you doing to help private sector get stronger? 
what are you doing to help private sector jobs be created? Uh, and what are you doing to be able to, to fend us off from unfair foreign competition? Those are the questions I would be asking during the selection cycle. That's Bill Lee, chief economist of the Milken Institute. That's an independent think tank based in Santa Monica. Bill Lee, thanks so much for making the time this morning. Thanks for having me. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross with you on this Friday, as I am on all Fridays. When we come back, if you have a spare oh, $3,500 floating around, Apple will help you spend it on their new Apple Vision Pro. We're going to dig into the technology, then also hear some concerns about the technology. Of course, Food Friday is coming up after that. We are on air online, LAist.com, live streaming on Instagram right now. LAIST official, LAIST official, back in 60 seconds. Support for LAIST comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. Austin Cross with you on this Friday on air and live streaming right now on Instagram at LAist Official. That's L-A-I-S-T Official, where I would love to see you. You can also take part in the conversation there. You can get a peek inside of Studio A. Well, look, if you've got a spare $3,500 floating around Apple has some suggestions on where you can spend it right now. Out today is the Apple Vision Pro. And it looks kind of like a clunky pair of ski goggles, but you put them on and you get this digital world where you control apps with your eyes. You can augment reality. You can get all up in your favorite movies. You can really feel like Jack is drawing you like one of his French girls. So what's it like? And is it worth the hype? Let's get started with Lance Ulanoff, U.S. Editor-in-Chief of Tech Radar, also somebody who I've been following on Twitter, now known as X, for like a decade. So turning this parasocial relationship into an actual radio conversation. Lance, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks. And thanks for following me. <laughs> of course. It's, it's good <laughs> entertaining <excited>. stuff. <laughs> Well, let's start with the basics for folks who might not have uh, been up on this tech. And I'll admit, even I wasn't, because sometimes when technology is so new uh, and I'm taking in so much information, I say, I'll check back in on this when it's something. But since it's here now, we got to pay attention to it. Can you just talk me through the basics of the look, the feel? I understand it's got a little bit of weight to it as well. Talk me through this Apple device. So it's a mixed reality headset. What that means is it combines augmented and virtual reality. Apple likes to call this spatial computing, something new. And I actually kind of su- support the notion. But yeah, it's, 
it looks like a pair of goggles, but there's, there's so much technology packed, packed inside of it. It's got a glass front. It has an aluminum body. It has some carbon fiber. It has some fabric. Uh, you, it weighs about a pound and a third, and you are strapping it to your head. So you can spend some time finding the right fit. Um, it has, it's very powerful. It has an M2 chip and an R1 chip, and they're actually handling two different parts of the technology. It's 23 million pixels. So two uh, micro LED 4K screens and one in front of each eye. You control it with your eyes and gestures. So there is no controller. Um, and in the best sort of tradition, Apple tradition of, of sort of think do, this is an incredibly intuitive interface. Uh, so the hardest part is maybe just getting set up because it is kind of bespoke in that you are sort of guided through it. You do, in my case, I wear glasses all the time. You can't wear glasses while you're wearing these things. So in fact, you get prescription lenses that pop into it, held yeah. in by magnets. That's an additional, by the way, if it's full prescription, $149. Of so course. if you just get reading lenses, it's $99, $149 for the Zeiss uh, prescription lenses. Uh, and they do a good job. Can I just say how funny? A lot of things. Oh, oh Lance, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I just wanted to put in a quip that it's, it's hilarious to me that growing up, I feel like everybody's parent told them, don't sit too close to the television. You'll ruin your eyesight. <laughs> and now it's like, put it on your face. <laughs> it, it is, you know, it's so true. But but I think, you know, what's interesting is that if you ever got really close to your television set, what would happen? Uh, we'd break down into dots, right? Mm -hmm. I used to get really right. close just so I could see those dots. I was very curious about it. Well, here you are with a micro LED screen, just, you know, centimeters, or maybe a set away from your eyes, and you don't see any dots. What you see is crystal clear and perfect. And this, wow. and this is one of the reasons it works so well. So it's, it's excellent imagery combined with really smart intelligence about, you know, keeping track of where your eyes are looking, where your head is at, what you're pointing at, or what you're pinching or pulling, or whatever you're doing, it all works together. So you never feel like I'm staring at a garbage screen, uh, I'm trying to get it to do something and nothing's happening. Uh, so it ends up feeling, at least when you're in it and you're working through it, quite natural. Uh, now, I'm not going to argue and say, oh, well, yeah, of course, natural to put this thing on your face. No, it's not. <laughs> it's it's a, you know, there's, we're at sort of the first stage, but a very good first stage of a really important technology innovation. It's sort of a shift into something. Spatial computing is not just marketing. It is this idea of doing everything inside of this system. But I would love for it to be a half pound lighter. And you know what's really funny? The other thing I should mention is, sure. so the battery is not in the headset. The battery is a separate you wear thing. It. It's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, so it's it's connected by a wire. So imagine that weighs almost, I'd say, at least a half pound by itself. So imagine if that was in the headset. So Apple made a real uh, critical decision here. It's not a very apple -y thing to do, to have something dangling off of it. But I think they had no choice. Uh, it's not terrible. Uh, I keep it the battery often in my pocket mm. and it lasts about two hours. You can plug it into an outlet so that if you want to keep going for longer, you can. It just runs through the battery. Uh, so, you know, there's there's a lot. Well, One you know, thing I wanted to mention. Well, Lance, I, right. I, should, I should put in, I mean, it's interesting, and you've got a lot to say about this. Let me reintroduce you first. Talking right now with Lance Ulanoff, U.S. Editor-in-Chief of Tech Radar. We're talking about the Apple Vision Pro, which is out today. Uh, you strap it on your face, you get immersed in a digital world. It also has a lot of tools that can maybe help you with productivity. 
And as you talk about this tech, you know, Lance, you say you wish it was a little bit lighter. You do wear the battery on your side. I think about how I have historically never been an early adopter of any technology. I've always been a very late adopter. I think my iPhone is from 2018. And, you know, I grew up, my dad always gave us his hand-me-down. So we had like the big VHS recorder with that long stick battery that would go into it. And so when I think about this, as you're describing it to me, I'm just thinking one day that's going to be very old technology, but it is important today. And that leads me to my question about Apple's vision for the Vision Pro and how it fits into what they believe to be the future. Can you tell us a little bit about that? In their marketing, commercials, what Tim Cook says, they never say virtual reality. Um, they don't say augmented reality. They don't even say mixed reality. They say hmm. spatial computing. It's very, they're very specific about that. But their intention can, can is Can I just ask, you think clear. it's because virtual reality is a territory that's been explored for so long now that people might come in with preconceptions or just as an aside, I'm very curious about why the are well, not I think using that, that word. Yeah. Just... I, th I think that's a really good point that look, Apple's come into many categories where they've already existed, right? The category has been there. Apple comes in and so-called reinvents it, right? They did it with the MP3 players, which they didn't call it an MP3 player. It says, right. this is the iPod. Uh, they did it with the, the smartphone. This is the iPhone. And, but to their credit, Apple has always managed to do things so that it does seem like a reinvention, that it does seem like they've gone a step further. Because what they do is they look at how everyone has done everything already. They, they look at all the pain points and they try and remove them or take mm. the state of the art further so they can say, yeah, you may have experienced something like this before, but this is completely different. It's like a second so, mouse gets the cheese sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. And Apple's been playing this game uh, quite successfully for um, 20 plus years. And, you know, at this point with this product, um, it's called spatial computing. So not AR, not VR, but something new. Uh, and I will say that unlike other VR headsets and mixed reality headsets I've worn before, this is probably the first time I've spent hours wearing something because I'm doing a number of different things. Uh, I certainly could play games. I certainly could just watch movies. Uh, I could, you know, experience a virtual reality. I can put the whole environment around me, but I can also get real work done. Uh, I can connect my MacBook Pro uh, as a Mac virtual desktop. And then here's the thing that makes it interesting. Cause it's not just, oh, oh, so it's a small screen in front of me. I can make it a wall size screen. So mm. anytime you've ever thought I don't have enough desktop space, well, that's gone. But the only way you can do that is if you have crystal clear imagery. And I will say that that's the thing that really makes it kind of, I hate to use the and word magical, but it feels a little magical because I can read everything no matter how big the screen is. Well, well, can I ask you this? Because in a second, we're going to talk to Jeremy Balinson. He's over at Stanford. He's done some work looking into uh, virtual human interaction with devices. Uh, but as you enter into this space, and what it really sounds like is when you put on this device, it creates a, a sort of space, a sort of environment for you to be in, whether you're watching a movie yes. or whether you're doing work. Um 
getting a little existential about it. Does it feel like you're being transported? Does it feel like you're in the same place? Does it feel like you're in a device? You're working with the device? No, how how is no. it connecting with your actual humanity? Well, well I, it's a really it's a really good point. It's something actually clearly Apple thought a lot about. So a lot of times I'm working in the Vision Pro with the outside world completely in view. So I've got these screens, but I can see the room I'm in. Um, but it's like an endless space to work in. So the other day, I had gone to try something in another room. Then I came back to this room and I continued working. And later I was like, oh, I want to try that app again. I, That's where, where is it? So I got up and I physically walked to the other room. The app was sitting there floating in space. Ah. So it's just such a weird thing, but it's, it's, it's like twisting your reality. Your reality is now mixed with this all stuff that knows its place in the world. Um, and the other part that Apple has tried to do less successfully is to keep you connected with people sort of on a human level. And there are two things. They have um, eyesight. So if I were talking to you directly and I were wearing the Vision Pro and you were looking at me, what would happen is I would start to see you clearly. No matter what I was doing, you would come into clarity and you would look at me and see in the screen, the front of the, the Vision Pro, my eyes except they wouldn't be a direct, you would not be looking through the system at my eyes. Instead, you'd be looking at a video recreation of my eyes at the camera. It feels a little bit weird. I have to admit, hearing that. Not only does it strange. feel weird, it looks weird. It's called eyesight. I think it's something they're still kind of working on. Other thing is personas. You take the, the device off, you scan your face, you put it back on, you engage in FaceTime calls. So instead of appearing with Vision Pro on your face, your face appears in Vision Pro calls, except... It's a 3D recreation of your face based on that scan. But How did yours turn out? The camera out? can see your eyes and mouth. You can see it online. You can see that I wrote, you know, wrote about <laughs> the story of two days with it. You see it. I've been told mine is among the better ones. Oh. Uh, but it's still, it's still a slightly uncanny valley sort of thing. And they say it's a beta, by the, by the way. So they will continue to improve the quality, I think, of that image. Right now, I don't really have ears. Uh, my teeth are too perfect. Uh, my goatee is more or less gone. But it does track my mouth and my eyes if I'm winking, blinking, smiling, whatever. And it did that because during the scan, I did those things. I closed my eyes. I smiled broadly. Oh. I smiled with my teeth. Um, but it, yeah, this, I mean, it does feel like I'm talking about something you'll be dealing with a decade from now. But we're, we're in it now. This is happening right now. And I think the biggest hurdle of all things, leaving aside weight and the battery, is that price. That's going to be the biggest stumbling block, I think, for everyone. Talking right now with Lance Ulanoff, U.S. Editor-in-Chief of Radar. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the Apple Vision Pro. He had a chance to give it a go. Uh, I should also mention we're live streaming right now on Instagram at LAist Official, L-A-I-S-T Official, a way that we're bringing technology into uh, an old medium such as radio. And I want to bring into the conversation Jeremy Balinson, who's a professor of communication at Stanford. He's also the founding director of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab. Jeremy, welcome to you. Austin, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm stellar now that you are here. And I understand that you've looked into devices like these. Um, and, and you've gotten a lot of thoughts from them after having experience with them and you and your colleagues working with them. Uh, could you just tell me briefly, you know, you have, I know already a 30 minute limit on VR use. A lot of folks, a lot of the tech folks who have tried them out have tried them out for long periods of time, but why is there a limit of 30 minutes when you and your colleagues are trying these devices? 
Yeah, so, so first, let me start by saying how fun it is to be on with Lance. Um, in 2014, when Mark Zuckerberg visited my lab and then bought Oculus for what we now know is $3 billion, Lance was the one that broke the news. So Lance, uh, great to be uh, Amazing. Good to see things are consistent, huh? Wow. And it comes full circle. <laughs> comes full circle. So it does. I've been studying VR for 25 years. My PhD is in cognitive science, but I'm also a bit of an engineer and we build VR and we study it. And um, what we've learned consistently over time is that when VR and AR are earning their keep, when they're really returning on investment, it's because you're using it in short doses for very special experiences. And so uh, we have an acronym in the lab, it's called DICE. Use labs for oh. things, use VR for things that if you did them in the real world would be dangerous, impossible, counterproductive or expensive. And so let me give you an example. Okay. Uh, in two weeks, we're gonna be bringing mixed reality headsets to the California Academy of Sciences and people are gonna get to put on the headsets. They're gonna get to reach out their virtual arms, but see pass through of Claude, the huge albino alligator. And they're gonna get to mm. pet Claude as if he were a cat. That'd be dangerous to do in the real world, but it right. brings joy and utter um, engagement to people but it's a short experience, it's for five minutes. And I could go through the list, but in general, what we've shown in the lab is that when you're gonna put on a headset and mess up your hair and, and disconnect yourself from the real world, it's worth doing that for things that are not everyday experiences. And so I love the Apple headset. I think it's a triumph, an utter stunningly magical feat of technology where I differ with the vision is I don't like a world in which we're wearing headsets all day to read our email and to check Excel spreadsheets. And I want to ask you about that because folks of a certain age, and I am not of this certain age, but people would remember when computers came onto the scene, there were people who knew how to use computers, the people who didn't know how to use computers. And pretty soon, I think it would be hard to find uh, a job now that doesn't require you to interact with technology in some way Part of my concern, if this is to become a much bigger industry, is that we could see a day where maybe your your employer requires you to stay strapped into this VR for eight hours a day. Maybe where it's gone from being something that uh, only a few people have to suddenly it's an expectation that you have it and that you know how to use it. Is that why DICE is so important for you in some ways so that there's a sort of boundary yeah. built around this technology as we develop it? Yeah, so um, I've got a company called Striver that I co-founded with a student. And for the last decade, we've been slowly putting VR in companies for employees to train. Let me give you an example. If you walk into any single Bank of America today, hmm. in the back room, we'll have a couple of headsets and you can put it on and you can train. You can practice having a difficult conversation with the customer. You can look around and try to detect fraud in a, in a fun scene hunt that trains you how to do so. And those experiences are short. They're 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and you don't need to do them all the time. Once every two weeks is, is enough to train for fraud detection. And so we've hmm. learned protocols where you can safely manage meaning safely in terms of privacy and motivation and come up with the non-VR options. I strongly believe VR is gonna be amazing in the workplace. What I disagree with is the vision that we need to do knowledge work in VR, because again, what makes MR or VR or AR special is you're moving your body around, you're having an experience you couldn't have in the real world. And we've got other tools that are crushingly good for doing Excel, it's called a computer. And uh, my philosophy of the lab and what our research has always shown is that you save VR 
for things that you couldn't do otherwise. And I just don't love a world and we're, we're forced to put on headsets to read our emails. I just, that just doesn't click with what we've known historically. Uh, the other thing I'll say about Apple and how stunning their technology is, this is their first try in VR. And if you think about what Facebook has gone through or Meta now, they've had lots and lots of headsets, over 10 in fact, and they've released a headset and found things that worked and then you know adjusted and then bought different companies with different apps and there's been a slow evolution. And you know it's a, what Apple's trying to do is very different and, and perhaps risky. On the other hand, we know that Apple is also beginning their journey uh, focusing on things like training and businesses. I mean, despite that it's a consumer product, they are aware that some of these more short-term dice type applications are the ones that are going to put heads in headsets. Well, Jeremy, I do have to ask you about what you actually found as you research yeah, products like you. these, which is very important with our, our limited time left. But it does not leave you unaffected to use a VR device. Yeah. I think it's so so if, talk, if talk you... me through what is effective, what happens. Yeah, thanks, Austin, for reminding me about our great paper. We just published it in an amazing journal yeah. called Technology, Mind, and Behavior. And we had a lot of people wear different mixed reality headsets over time. And the key to remember about this pass-through video is that it is, you know, Lance said the word magic, and it is magic. You put this on and you it's it's your the latency's low, it's stereo, like you feel like you're there initially. Right. But then you start to notice, well, really what's different about the human visual system? For example, I want everyone when they get their Apple Vision Pro or their MetaQuest 3 to do something called the Pinocchio test. Take your finger, slowly bring it to your nose and okay. stop it when you think you're touching your nose visually where you think your finger would touch your nose. Then take a photo of where your finger is or slide off the headset and it's going to be about eight or nine centimeters, about three or four inches away from your physical nose. In oh. other words, the compression and distortion of space is so substantial that you're literally doubling the distance that you think your finger is from your nose. So uh, in distance distortion or underestimation is one of the main things we found. The other thing that we found, uh, again, and this is with long-term use, we'd wear these things out in public, we'd go buy coffee. The field of view is quite low. So you can't hmm. see the world around you in your periphery. It's like blinders. And when you're in a social scene, it's incredibly unsettling. And we encountered some very difficult situations where because you couldn't see the people around you and they thought you could because everyone assumes you've got peripheral vision. Uh, there's some conflicts with nonverbal uh, behavior and, of course, with just pure collisions. Wow. So there, there's so much to happen there. Are any of these effects, and this is just in the last 30 seconds that I have you here, are any of these effects yep. uh, long term or do they raise questions that you're watching yeah. in the future uh, for how they could affect, say, young developing minds, other people. Yeah, so I want to be really careful here. As a lab, we are all in on studying pass-through video and mixed reality. We just got institutional review board approval at Stanford to put people in headsets for many weeks uh, and to study what happens with them over time. And my lab does have some studies on longitudinal VR and AR use, and um, readers can go to our, our free labs website to look at our academic publications. The short answer is the world academically has no idea what's gonna happen to the visual system or to the after effects. So the after effects, if you get used to these compressed distances, so you're always bringing your hand a little extra to your mouth when you're eating with a fork with the pass-through vision, the question is what happens when you take those headsets off? Are you jamming the fork into your mouth and hitting your teeth because you're used to that uh, adaptation? Mm. You're adapting to the adaptation. We call those after effects. 
Wow. So much to take in, so much to consider. That's Jeremy Balinson, professor of communication at Stanford, where he's the founding director of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab. He's been looking into VR for decades now. Really fascinating work there. We also heard from Lance Ulanoff, U.S. Editor-in-Chief of Tech Radar. We've been talking about the Apple Vision Pro. Such a fascinating conversation. So many more questions, but it's also Food Friday. We got to get that in too. We are live streaming right now on Instagram at LAist Official. If you would like to see as well as hear our food experience. But when we come back, we're going to talk with the folks behind Bada Santos and Cypress Park. They are James Beard Awards semifinalists. Best restaurant. We're going to talk about that. When we come back, 90 seconds. Stick around. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram right now at LAist Official if you want to see what we're chowing down on because it is, of course, Food Friday and ooh, it is a good one today. You might have heard James Beard Awards semifinalists were announced last week. They recognized the best of the best chefs, restaurants across the country, and of course, Southern California is well represented. No surprises there. Come on. So, of course, we got to share some with you. Today, we are transporting your taste buds to Portugal. And with us are the owner and the chef of Barra Santos in Cypress Park, nominated for Best New Restaurant, Mike Santos, Melissa Lopez. Thank you both so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Just want to get your reaction when this nomination came down because you're a new spot you haven't been in business in this spot for very long. How did it feel? I'll start with the chef. Yeah, obviously it's a huge honor. Uh, not one that I don't think we necessarily expected. We're a small Portuguese restaurant in Cypress Park, uh, but obviously a huge honor. And it goes to show that as a group, as a restaurant with everyone who works there, it's uh, when you build something from the ground up and you have people who have been there from the very get-go, it, it, it makes a difference. What are you thinking right now? Yeah, I mean, I just want to echo her statements. I think it was really unexpected for us, and uh, we're really proud. And, uh, I mean, we're just a small part of the whole thing. I think our whole crew uh, was very deserving of it. And I was just really excited and, and happy that we got nominated and got a shout-out. Well, talk me through, Mike, how this restaurant came to be, because I know it's not your first restaurant venture, but also 
this one I understand kind of gets in touch with your roots. Could you just take us into how this happened? Yeah, yeah. So I immigrated from Portugal when I was five uh, to the East Coast, and I grew up in the East Coast in Rhode Island, where there is uh, quite a few Portuguese uh, restaurants and just a, a large Portuguese community in general. And uh, I've always been around food and, and obviously Portuguese culture. And then being here in LA for about 10 years, uh, we've talked about doing a Portuguese concept for a while. Uh, and when we found the space, it just made sense. So it was a good opportunity for us to bring some of that Portuguese culture uh, and food, obviously, to L.A. And, and get some exposure for it. So we're excited. So obviously there's a wide range of food in any culture. What was the kind of aesthetic that you were going for? What was it like that you wanted to deliver to people through this food? So I think it's a combo of a few things. I mean, the food was certainly part of it. Uh, the space was really important for us as well. It's the whole experience. Uh, a lot of people, when they come into the space, tell us they feel transported, which I think means a lot mm. to, to us. Uh, it feels worn in, even though we've been there for less than a year. Um, and and the food is is simple, but but has a lot of flavor and and really does a great job of representing what Portugal is all about. I mean, as you say, transported. I want to highlight that you did bring a dish today for the folks on Instagram. Uh, they can see it, but this is it's the tuna crudo, right? That's right. And I just want to give the overall impressions because the experience is here. I'm getting uh, black pepper, olive oil. A lot of citrus, lemon, yeah, lemon, Meyer lemon. That's right. Maybe oh, <laughs> I mean, and the fact is, is that it was about two feet away from me, and this is a cold dish, and I'm still getting all these scents. Uh, chef, tell me about uh, your experience because I understand that you uh, you worked at Bestia, yep. you worked uh, at uh, the Italian restaurant a Barbudo in New York City's West Village, so. You've done some things. You've yeah. seen some stuff. <laughs> Talk to me about the transition from Italian to coming to Barra Santos and making dishes like these. I think that the core of Portuguese cooking is very simple, like Italian cooking. It's about layering flavors, you know, uh, adding a lot of, like, fragrant uh, things to dishes. We use a lot of citrus, a lot of fish sauces, which is kind of like my secret ingredient. Uh but I think that this tuna crudo kind of encompasses like all those things in a very small thing. So like really great product. We get uh, bluefin tuna from Baja, so local-ish. Oh. Uh, a lot of citrus in that, black pepper, which is just kind of unexpected in a, in a raw tuna dish. But I think as you eat it, you're just, every bite is a little bit different, which I love. I mean, I have to ask, you mentioned the fish sauce. Usually I hear about that for say East Asian recipes and things like that. It's your secret weapon. Is that not something typically used, do you think, in Portuguese food? Mike, I, I doubt that it is. Yeah, not fish <laughs> sauce per se, yeah. But a lot of fish in general in Portuguese food. So she's found a great way to implement that fish flavor in a lot of things where you wouldn't expect it. I mean, we just have so many food mixes here in Los Angeles. What is it that the fish sauce specifically brings? This is just such an unusual ingredient. I have to highlight. Yeah, no, it it's just it. like a burst of umami. Like mm -hmm. you kind of know that feeling of like super savory, and you don't really know where it's coming from. And it's usually fish sauce. <laughs> don't know where it's coming from, but it's good. <laughs> Talking right now with Melissa Lopez, head chef at Barra Santos in Cypress Park, Mike Santos, owner of Barra Santos. Uh, they are James Beard Award semifinalists. Uh, for best restaurant. We're also live streaming right now on Instagram, by the way, LAIST official, if you would like to see the dish in front of us. So can you talk me through the dish that is in front of me right now, Chef? Yes. Yeah, so it's a tuna crudo. It's a Baja bluefin tuna. Uh, we dress it in a Meyer lemon vinaigrette. Oh. Uh, 
there's nice. Malden sea salt on top, so it gives a little bit of like a crunchy salt uh, on the tuna. There's oh, fresh so cla- cracked black pepper and then some Meyer lemon zest. Right so on top. the zest, the zest really has the lemony scent to it. Like it just cuts through all else. Uh, I'm definitely going to try this. I feel like it's going to be a full mouth experience. But uh, as I do try it, I want to ask you about this very extensive wine list that you have. Uh, looks like a lot of Portuguese wines. I understand that wine is a big part of the experience of going to Barra Santos because you don't take reservations, right? That's right. Okay. So <laughs> while people wait, what else can you do but enjoy uh, potentially a Portuguese wine, maybe a port, um, maybe a Madeira? Uh, could you tell me a little bit about your selections there, Mike? Sure, yeah. So shout out to Evelyn, who is our beverage director for the whole company and shout is the Evelyn. curator <laughs> of that wine list. Uh, she's done a fantastic job of sourcing Portuguese mm. wines, which mm. are very difficult to get out here in California, uh, especially the small production stuff that we get. And uh, wow. she just did a great job of representing Portugal from all the way from the northern part of the country to all the way through it. and. And uh, it pairs up really well with everything on the menu. Uh, and you mentioned port. We do a uh, white port and tonic, which is quite oh popular. And quite a few people drink them when they're hanging on the sidewalk mm-hmm. waiting for a table. I mean, port just feels like, I'll leave the gentleman to their port. And yeah. we'll all go into the... <laughs> it's very fancy. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what, how do you label it on the menu? I think it said, um, drink like a lord. That's right. <laughs> so that's very fitting. Um, so I just tried this uh, tuna dish. And just so many fresh flavors coming at me right now. Um, I feel like you'd maybe intend for this to be shared, but the second I try it, I'm like, I'm not sharing this with anybody. <laughs> I have to order two now. That's the move for sure. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, talk to me about the sort of environment that you're trying to create for people when you go in, because I understand it's an immersive experience, really. You go in, you feel like you're transported. Your taste buds are transported. What was the thought behind that, Mike? Well, again, just the uh, the space itself. Uh, my business partners, who have a really great uh, vision for design, uh, were able to source uh, beautiful tile, which is such a big part of Portuguese culture. And so the bulk of the restaurant is tiled out in Portuguese-style tiles. It's got old exposed brick and, and uh, wood bar top. So it feels lived in and, and, and older, even though it's only been around since March. Uh, So that's part of the experience. Uh, You know, as the night goes on, we drop the lights a little lower and the music gets a little louder and the vibe in there is just a lot of fun. You know, it's essentially like we're hosting a party uh, every night of the week. And we're fortunate enough, obviously, with Melissa cooking fantastic food to serve everybody and Mm. uh, Evelyn putting up some great wine. And, uh, you know, we just have a good time. Uh, Our staff really enjoys being there. We enjoy being there. And we've been really fortunate with the people that have come in and had the experience. Okay, so tell me about a full experience. Let's say somebody's hearing this right now. They're hearing me chowing down on this tuna, which is, (laughs) I mean, it's an experience, a full-on mouth experience. They say, I want to come in tonight. I want the full Portuguese experience. I want to feel like I'm in somebody's mother's house. What would be the lineup that you would recommend? Give me that wine pairing. Give me that starter. What are we looking at? So I think at first, while you patiently wait outside for uh, your seat, <laughs> yeah, it's very true. You, We're gonna uh, wait. Okay. You, you have <laughs> a you have a Porto Tonico, um, and you uh, enjoy the music, and mm. then we get you inside and we post you up on the bar. Oh my god! Uh, you definitely get the Lisbon special, which is uh, whatever cheese that chef gets for the day. Usually a Portuguese cheese, uh, Iberico ham, and some olives as well. Uh, and then you talk to your, your bartender or server about Portuguese wine. So I'd probably do like a Vino Verde. 
uh, and then jump into that tuna crudo you're having right oh now. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, an endive salad. Um, I would do the salt cod fritters because salt cod is such a big, important part fritters. of Portuguese culture. Uh, and then I would drop down and probably do the uh, the whole fish and the uh, pork sandwich are probably my two nightcaps. Oh my gosh, so much good stuff. And whew, I got to say, worth the wait. I don't wait much, but this here, the tuna crudo, worth the wait. Uh, that's Mike Santos, owner of Bada Santos in Cypress Park. Melissa Lopez, head chef at Bada Santos. Um, just incredible job. Thank you so much. Thank you so much you. for having us. Congratulations on being Appreciate semifinalists. It. My fingers are crossed for you. <laughs> Ours <Thank> too. You. <laughs> this is Air Talk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. Larry is back with Film Week next hour. Until then... Have a great weekend. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us with a trio of critics, Leo Lowenstein, Andy Klein of AV Club, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. They're three of the 11 critics, 11 of them, that'll be on stage at the Orpheum Theater Sunday afternoon, March 3rd, for the 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards Preview. We'd love to have you in the audience for the event. Tickets are available at laus.com slash events. Make sure that you join us for what's going to be a very, very special afternoon. We'll have clips of the Best Picture nominees and hear what our critics have to say. They'll duel it out over their competing views of some of the films. We begin with this week's new movies, Argyle, which is an espionage thriller starring Henry Cavill and Bryce Dallas Howard. Matthew Vaughn is the director. Jason Fuchs, the screenwriter. Andy, please start us on Argyle. Well, this is entertaining, but... <laughs> and I'll get to the but in a second. Uh, this opens with a totally implausible fight sequence, and then you discover it's not implausible because it is an author doing a book reading of her spy novel. And, you know, the camera pulls back and we see her with her fans. But, of course, what happens shortly thereafter is she runs into real spies and they're after her. And it has something to do with her books. Uh, Sam Rockwell is the spy who is 
at times trying to protect her, we think maybe, maybe not sometimes. And so she gets involved in all this action stuff that she's totally unequipped for. Uh, the film has a great cast. Um, it's got Richard E. Grant. It's got... Uh, Brian Kath- Cranston, yep. Catherine O'Hara. Yep, Catherine O'Hara and Brian C- Cranston as the... Well, I can't say what, who they're playing, actually. Samuel <laughs> L. Jackson, Ariana yeah. DeBose, John Cena. It's a terrific cast, and most of them are very good. But the problem here is this film is over two hours. It is one plot convolution after another and some of them could have been absolutely exercised without (laughs) losing anything in the film. Leo, what do you think of Argyle? Yeah, I agree with Andy. You know, it started kind of promisingly. There there are some twists and turns and some good action set pieces and it almost has the feeling of like a lighter very spirited Bond film Um, and then it sort of veers off in some different directions. And, you know, the the setup supposedly is that, well, she just knows too much about the about her characters and they sort of presage things that happen in other actual spy craft. And so that's why she's the target of this, these other spy agencies and so forth. But um, there are, it gets even weirder and weirder. There's a lot of stuff we can't say, but there's a number of set pieces that just go way over the top. And Andy's right could have been cut off. It could have, it, it probably should have been about 30 minutes shorter. But it's fun, great cast, great costumes, um, entertaining for the most part. Argyle is the film rated PG-13 in wide release. Orion and the Dark uh, is an animated adventure comedy uh, directed by uh, Sean Charmatz. Uh, Charlie Kaufman, of course, the screenwriter, also director, is the screenwriter of Orion and the Dark. It's on Netflix. Charles, what did you think? This film reminded me of, and I may be dating myself, Tom Lear's old song about Lobachevsky. When his first book is published, every element in it was taken from something else. This is essentially a Christmas carol retold through the diary of a wimpier kid (laughs) with bits from uh, Inside Out, from Meet the Robinsons, from Soul, from Wreck-It Ralph, from The Princess Bride. Many of these terrific films. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, they were in the original. Yes. Uh, Orion, our title character, is... An 11-year-old who's still terrified of the dark in the entire world and clearly needs either therapy or ether. (laughs) And he meets dark personified because he's so afraid of the dark who looks like uh, the ghost of Christmas present made out of smoke. And he talks like a mixture of Bender in Futurama and Wreck-It Ralph. And he's really a good guy, but he has just this tough job and nobody likes him because of it, Uh, which is, of course, Wreck-It Ralph. And they go on a series of adventures. They learn lessons. They take up with some other night creatures, dreams and sleep and uh, insomnia. None of them terribly original. And then suddenly he's dealing, you see him grown up talking to his own daughter uh, named Hypatia, which is a bit questionable. Uh, And she comes, she's not only hearing the story, she's acting into it and getting into it. And it just... It talks and it talks and it talks and it talks. And 
there's there just isn't an original idea in it. Orion in the Dark, which is strange from a Charlie Kaufman screenplay, especially. I know it's adapted from a children's book by Emma Yarlett, but but still we think of Charlie Kaufman as doing highly original writing. Orion in the Dark, Lael. You know, Charles, I think you... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hear what's yeah. coming. All right, I'm, Charles, I'm with, you're I mean, in big trouble, Charles. Charles. I, I, look, I'm I'll go her. stand I'm, in the corner. Well, hang on there, boys. Um, I... You're not wrong in that it is derivative. And by the way, you forgot Big Hero 6. So there's oh, a little yes. bit of, that's the, <laughs> yes, little that's bit of that, ending. too. Yeah. But I do I do think there are some moments of originality. Like, you know, Char- Char- you can see the Charlie Kaufman neurosis sort of woven throughout the film. And at one point, you know, when the kid asks his parents to read him uh david foster wallace because it's the biggest book on the shelf like you know you you know there's you're not going to see that in any other uh animated film really and and i just thought i don't know it's it's charming it's it's clever the 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 sort of time switching thing was kind of neat um it did remind me of Inside Out a little bit with all the different um, night characters that, that come out. There's sleep, there's insomnia, there's dreams, there's noises, there's other things, you know, and, and they're uh, all silence. sort of, yes, it's, they're all personified in different little characters. But I just thought it was mostly, mostly endearing and, and sweet. And if you had, a, if you're a parent who has a kid that is having trouble falling asleep because they're afraid of the dark, this would be a good movie to play for them. But at age 11? Yeah. Eh. You let, right. you let Charles off quite easy. Char- yeah, I expected I been... more with your wine. Well, all right. I, next time. Next time, Charles. <laughs> okay. You won't get away so easy. Yeah, Andy, what do you think I'm of Orion totally, and the I'm Dark? I'm totally with Lael on this. Thank you. Um, and, and what I find interesting, because I'm a huge Charlie Kaufman fan, is that I assume that the book it was based on, which was a kid's book, is just the inner story of the little boy. And Charlie Kaufman adds, among other things, two layers of meta narrative in this which you know he can't resist and i found it totally endearing and charming and it may be totally derivative but i enjoyed it no end Hmm. Orion and the Dark, the animated feature, is streaming on Netflix, directed by Sean Charmotz, Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter. It's rated TVY7. The Promised Land is a Danish biographical drama starring Mads Mikkelsen and Gustav Lind. The film is directed by Nikolai Arcel. Leo, what did you think of The Promised Land? This film was probably the biggest surprise of the week for me. Uh, it's it's a historical epic set in 1755, and it's the story of a, a, a very taciturn soldier who comes back from war. He's got a very humble background. He himself is, I think, a bastard. And the film is called Bastard in, in, in Danish. So, uh, and he, all he wants, all he wants upon returning is a, is a piece of land, which is the Jutland, the heath of Denmark, which is very, you know, hostile land, wind swept and impossible to cultivate. And he somehow manages to get granted this land because no one thinks there's anything's ever going to grow on and to get grown on it and the promise the only thing he asked for is that when he's managed to cultivate the land he gets a noble title and um the, it could you know and the pride of having done that so um from there it gets a little more complicated because he go he does go to this landscape and try to cultivate has all kinds of problems runs into a villain and there's some people that come and stay with him it's Various characters come in and out of his life, but mainly this is sort of a Western set in Denmark. 
uh, it felt very much like a John Ford film in mm. a way, in that in that the lead character played by Mads Mikkelsen, that terrific Danish actor who's in everything, uh, is is just a man of few words. He he works with the land. He learns to make the land his own. And there's also all this sort of mythical. Uh, background, you know, these codes and things that seem very much like a Western to me. It's really the story of how one man journeys from being kind of selfish and egotistical to becoming a gentler soul and sort of more humane, but I don't want to say how. Um, but there's, it's it's a very gripping, surprising, surprisingly riveting, beautifully shot. A lot of the, 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 Images look almost like they could be a you know a Vermeer or a Rembrandt or something. They're they're just so I realize that's Dutch, but you know uh, not Danish. But but you could you you just get this feeling of walking into a painting and and it really kind of sucks you into its narrative. Despite the fact that I will admit when I saw that this was a costume drama set in the 18th century Denmark, I went oh no. <laughs> so stick Dut- with it. Dutiful watching, stick, not pleasure stick watching, with it but it was be, pleasure. You'll be glad you did. The promised yeah. land. And we're talking about Danish film, uh, directed and co-written by Nikolai Arcel. What do you think, Andy? Uh, I agree with Lael largely on this. Um, basically, uh, my my complaint would be that the villain was, he might as well have had a self-twirling mustache. I mean, <laughs> That's he was true. so over the top, this guy, that it was almost unbelievable. However, it is all on Mads Mikkelsen in this film. Not to say that the other actors aren't good, but it is his tra- his transformation, as mm-hmm. Lel said, from this guy who barely speaks, who is absolutely monomaniacal about this project he has, and is totally cut off from human contact, and how what he goes through on this project actually turns him into a way better human being. And it's worth mentioning, this was um, shortlisted for the International Film Academy Award. It's Denmark's official Oscar submission, and it you know, it made it to the top 15. All right. The Promised Land is rated R. It's available in select theaters. Uh, the Japanese animated fantasy drama Paprikai has been re-released. It was first out in 2006. Charles? This is the last film that Satoshi Kon made, and it brings home just what an enormous loss it was to animation and to world cinema when he died at 46, not long after completing this. Uh, The story involves a device that allows people to enter into others' dreams, and this woman who is a brilliant researcher must become the dream detective Paprika to keep terrorists from wreaking havoc in people's psyches. And even the title sequence just reminds you just how brilliant Khan was at shifting between reality and fantasy. You see Paprika riding down the the freeway in a motorcycle, and then suddenly she's in the logo on a truck. She's moving through animated billboards. She's turning up in someone's screen where the user has fallen asleep at his desk. She's the logo on somebody's T-shirt. And all these shifts and movements are just smooth and effortless and fascinating, and you move between the real world and the nightmares seamlessly. He was just such an extraordinary filmmaker. And and, uh, he was lost in his 40s of cancer? 46. He died of, of pancreatic cancer when he was working on his first children's film.
We're talking about the Japanese animated feature Paprika from Satoshi Kon. Uh, based on a 1993 novel, the film was released in 2006, now being re-released. It's rated R, so this a film for adults, in select theaters next Wednesday for one night only. The film is in Japanese with English subtitles. When we come back on Film Week, we'll hear about Vim Vender's Japanese film, Perfect Day. It's Japan's uh, submission for Best International Feature. Also, we're going to be interviewing Vim Vendors later this hour, talking about Perfect Days and how we happen to get attached to this story about a man who cleans toilets in Tokyo and about his day-to-day life. We'll also hear about the documentary Dario Argento Panico uh, and find out this about the uh, filmmaker and about the uh, Japanese, I'm sorry, Mexican uh, drama Totem. That's all coming up on Film Week with our critics. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Charles Solomon, Leah Lowenstein, and Andy Klein. Next up is Japan's entry for Best International Feature. It's one of the five finalists in that category, but it's directed by German Wim Wenders, Perfect Days is the film starring Koji Yakusho as a toilet cleaner in Tokyo as just a slice of his day-to-day life. Leo, what did you think of Perfect Days? This is such a lovely, beautiful film, Larry, that's just magnificent in its simplicity. And it's, you know, not a lot happens in this film, as you know. It's it's just, it observes this man uh, throughout his day, going to clean toilets. And by the way, toilets in Japan are not like here. They're these wonderful. These are spectacular. They are spectacular. There's these architectural marvels that the that the walls go dark when you turn on the light, and so it's crazy. You have to you, have, you really have to see it to believe it. But he has this meticulous, beautiful life where everything is planned, and he has a lot of structure. It's very very simple. He goes to work. He tends his plants. He has lunch under the trees. He takes pictures of the trees, and it's it's a, a very very humble existence, which is magnificent also because to me, it struck me as almost completely analog. You know, he he listens to cassettes in his car. He does have a, fo- a cell phone, but it's a flip phone. You know, he has a film camera. It's it's just, it, it's sort of the perfect antidote to our, our screen-addled lives and the, the lives of overstimulation that we're always living now. And it's it's just so beautifully observed. Um the actor Koji Yakusho was is probably most memorable from a film over 20, gosh, almost 30 years ago, Shall We Dance? He was mm-hmm. so lovely in that. And uh, he just, just gives a beautiful, subtle performance. And I, I just really enjoyed this film. I think it's just, it's a beautiful palate cleanser. I, I loved it as well, Lael. And it just, it just 
experiencing it like you're 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 just alongside him throughout mm-hmm. his day, day after day, and the rhythm of his mm. life, which doesn't have spectacular occurrences but has beauty in it, and and connection in it. I, I was very moved by the film. And in case you're wondering, how is it that a German filmmaker ends up directing what is Japan's uh, best international feature submission? You'll find out later this hour in my conversation with Vim Vendors. Andy, what did you think of Perfect Days? Uh, I I agree with Lel, although I did find it to be a little too simple for the first half hour or 40 minutes. It is very repetitious. And yes, it's a lovely ritual, but we see it several times. Mm. However, when he eventually, this is another character who does not talk practically. He is Mm. utterly nonverbal, but he's very happy in his lifestyle, Mm. which is cleaning the toilets, going home at night, reading a book, watering the plants. He has a whole bunch of little rituals, playing tic-tac-toe with a stranger. Um, it's very zen. And and it does, uh, we do get more insight when about two-thirds through his niece shows up and we discover a little bit about his family and what his relationship with with them is. But basically, this is Koji Ikusho, who's a wonderful, wonderful actor, going back to Tampopo. Oh, yeah, another uh, terrific film. Yeah, and uh, he's one of the best actors in Japan and has been for 30 or 40 years. As someone who has a life that that is heavily routinized, Mm. uh, I also appreciate it seeing how he routinized his life. Mm. Perfect Days is the film from director Vim Vendors. It's written by Takuma Takasaki and Vendors, rated PG. And again, my interview with Vendors coming up later. You can see it at the AMC Century City 15 on... on uh, next Wednesday, February 7th, and then it expands on the 16th to select theaters. The documentary Dario Argento Panico takes a look at the life of the filmmaker and interviews a number of other noted directors. Uh, Simone Scafidi is the director of the film. Andy, what do you think of this doc? Well, for the most part, it's kind of a by-the-numbers biographical thing intercut with interviews with him while he's trying to write his latest script. Um, I'm a a fan, though, that I still haven't caught up on all of his films. Suspiria is the one that I recommend to everybody, which is an amazing film. His most famous film. Yeah, but I was stunned to see that his first film, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, apparently was number one at the U.S. box office the week it opened. I mean, that was a shock to me in 1970. Um, You get great commentary from his daughter, Asia, and uh, even better from some of the filmmakers, uh, uh, particularly Guillermo del Toro, who is so insightful that he could be one of the best film critics in the world. I mean, he really totally nails it every time. Yeah, he's such a sharp guy. I love talking with Del Toro. So sharp. Dario Argento Panico is the documentary. It's streaming on the Shudder streaming service. It's unrated. Totem is a Mexican drama that's written and directed by Lila Aviles. Uh, Leo, what do you think of Totem? This is a lovely film, and I think it's only the second film from the up-and-coming Mexican filmmaker Lila Aviles, whose previous film was called The Chambermaid, which was also a, a remarkable, observational, very 
detailed and nuanced That's a film. really good movie. Yeah. Um, this takes place over the course of a single day. It's shot sort of mostly from the perspective of a seven-year-old girl named Sol who is going to a surprise birthday party for her father. She's with her mother as the film opens. And what we don't know but we sort of find out is that her father's also v- gravely ill and uh, the family has also recently had another loss so there's uh, sort of grief is at the fringes of, of the festivities all the time and grief is sort of encroaching but being a seven-year-old girl she um, you know she takes in what she takes in and it's very sort of um, it feels very organic and alive it has this almost direct cinema quality despite it being a, a narrative feature but it, it feels the the way the camera roves from the perspective of soul and the way she catches bits and pieces of conversation some of which she's not supposed to be hearing but we you know you 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 have this constant sort of sense of bustle and excitement but also grief and it it's this really kind of felt very emotionally authentic this this mixture of emotions and sensitivities and it feels like a real family and a real family event it feels like a very organic and alive film so, uh starring Naima Sentias oh, also Mexican's official entry to the uh, international Oscar category and it was shortlisted as well and it's nominated for best international film at the spirit awards yes. this this year we're talking about the film totem written and directed by Lila Aviles uh, it's unrated. You can see it at Lemley's Glendale Cinema. The Tiger's Apprentice, an animated action adventure directed by Raman Hoy, Young Duk Yun, and Paul Watling. Charles, what do you think of The Tiger's Apprentice? Uh, this is a perfectly competent, uh, low-budget animated film, but a lot of it you feel like you've seen before. Uh, Tom, a young Chinese-American kid, Uh, suddenly discovers after she's murdered that his grandmother was keeper of this mysterious object that's a phoenix egg. And suddenly he's got protectors who are the animals of the Chinese zodiac, both in their animal forms and as humans. And the tiger, Mr. Hu, becomes sort of his tutor. And Hu is kind of this not kind of by the rules guy and uh, doesn't get a lot of respect from the others, but he's charged with training this kid to prepare him. Um... The use of the Chinese zodiac animals and the training sequences invariably bring to mind the Kung Fu Panda movies, which are much better animated and at a much uh, bigger budget, just as the uh, villainous recalls uh, the evil sisters in um, Kubo and the Two Strings. Not the most original film you've seen, not a bad film, but I don't think there's anything exceptional about it. The Tiger's Apprentice is streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Andy? I like this probably a little more than Charles did. I admit that we've seen this story a million times in a million forms. But I thought it was nicely done. I thought it was funny when it meant to be. Uh, it has some lovely voice work, uh, including Lucy Liu, Sandra Oh, Michelle Yeoh, and Bo and Yang as the monkey Zodiac, which he's just perfect for. Uh, it's very Hong Kongy in a lot of ways. I mean, it opens with a ridiculous car chase, although in animation that's not as as impressive as when it's in live action. <laughs> We're talking about the animated feature, The Tiger's Apprentice, directed by Raman Hoy, Young Duk Jung, and Paul Watling. It's written by David McGee, Christopher L. Yost as well. It's unrated streaming on Paramount+. Plus. 
How to Have Sex is a British drama starring Mia McKenna-Bruce, Enva Lewis, Laura Peake. The film's written and directed by Molly Manning-Walker in her feature directorial debut. Leo? Manning-Walker was a cinematographer who shot a film called Scrapper, which uh, got a lot of attention at Sundance last year. And she's got a strong visual sense. She's not the DP on this, but she she kind of choreographs and and stages everything in, in fluorescent colors and uh, there's a real sense of aliveness. These are three British girls, like 17-year-olds who've just finished their A-level exams and they're in Crete on holiday and they're determined to get drunk and have sex. And so there's a feeling of sort of boisterousness and joy, but it quickly sort of turns into, uh, there's a bit of a sense of menace and dread as the girls sort of bathe themselves and soak in more and more alcohol. It Things get a little bit complicated. Uh, I, I, the title actually is kind of ironic. It's sort of more like how not to have sex. And uh, for the most part, it's pretty well acted. Mia M- McKenna-Bruce is, is very good as the sort of lead girl. And it does bring up some questions about consent, about um, knowing what you're doing, about about, you know, drinking too much and so forth. And it's not a moralistic film, but it's it sort of raises questions. And uh, it's it's interesting. It did win a prize at Cannes in the Uncertain Regard uh, sidebar. Which I so, never knew what that meant, Uncertain Regard. Do you know what that category represents? I think it's sort of like uh, for sort of up-and-coming directors, okay. maybe, things that they should... I've always actually... Yeah, sort of a strange exactly. kind of Uncertain <laughs> like, Regard. You know what? They're not quite does, They're not does that quite mean ready. should we really regard think, this film well? I think it means not ready for competition, not ready for okay. prime time just yet, but maybe soon. All right, let's yeah. look. How to Have Sex, the British drama is unrated and it's screening at the Alamo Drafthouse in downtown Town, Los Angeles. The horror comedy Departing Seniors is directed by Claire Cooney. Jose Nateras is the screenwriter. Andy? This is a perfectly adequate teen slasher film. Uh, I really enjoyed it, although you've absolutely seen everything in it a million times before. If there's anything different here, it's that the hero is a Mexican-American kid. He's gay. He's upfront about it. And so he is, and he's relatively small, so all the bullies in the school are constantly tormenting him. And then somebody decides to take revenge on them for that, always making it look like a suicide so nobody realizes that there's a serial killer happening. Uh, The leads are really likable. Um, uh, The plot, actually, the final solution maybe came out of nowhere, but I think they set up the red herrings properly so that I didn't feel cheated when we find out who's behind it. The film is Departing Seniors, a comedy horror film starring Ignacio Diaz-Silverio, Yanni Gelman, and Irian Roach, Claire Cooney, the director, Jose Nateras, the screenwriter. It's unrated. You can see it at Lemley's Glendale, and it's available on demand. And finally, the French sci-fi fantasy She is Conan, which is written and directed by Bertrand Mandico. Andy? Uh, This is a literally surrealistic film, not just surreal. This is in the tradition of Cocteau, of, say, Guy Madden, the Quay brothers. Uh, It's beautifully shot in black and white, and uh, some of it is visually really interesting, but I have to say the script is utterly repulsive, and it's filled with unnecessary gore and cannibalism. 
And I can't really say that I enjoyed it. The unnecessary cannibalism always yeah. disturbs me. Necessary it's, cannibalism. Yes. I mean, I'm fine with that. If it's tasteful. If people need to eat uh, each other, I get it. Extreme cannibalism. Uh, she is Conan, is the French sci fi fantasy film starring Alina Lowenson and Krista Theret. Uh, the film is unrated in French, German, and English with English subtitles at the Alamo Draft House downtown and at Lemley's NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. Now stay tuned. Coming up right after the break, Vim Vendors, the terrific German director, is with us. He's done so many wonderful films. Remember Paris, Texas with Harry Dean Stanton? But that's just a start in his um, tremendous career. We're going to be talking about the film that our critics reviewed earlier, which is Oscar-nominated for Best International Feature, Perfect Days, uh, which is just out next week in theaters before expanding. So that's all coming up. Also want to remind you our Film Week Academy Awards preview is just a few weeks away. It's Sunday, March 3rd, the Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles, beautiful historic venue, and our beautiful critics, 11 of them on stage, who'll be talking about all the films, also the clips from the best uh, feature films there. Tickets are available at laist.com slash events. I sure hope to see you there on March 3rd. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Filmmaker Vim Vendors is best known in the U.S. for his narrative movies Paris, Texas and Wings of Desire, as well as popular and influential documentaries on musicians and artists, perhaps Buena Vista Social Club being the best example. But his latest narrative film, Perfect Days, stars the terrific Japanese actor Koji Yakusho as a Tokyo restroom cleaner. It's a two-hour slice of life that highlights the man's daily routines and ways in which he finds beauty in his world. Vendors directed and co-wrote Perfect Days. Vim Vendors, so good to have you with us today on Film Week. Thank you, Larry. Where did the idea for Perfect Days originate? Well, it was a, quite a strange way because it started on a different foot. I got invited last year, early last year, to come to Tokyo and, and see if I'd be interested in making a series of short documentary subjects on architects and their creations and this time it wasn't it was famous architects 15 famous architects and normally they build banks and high rises and museums and stadiums this time they did toilets quite tiny little buildings 
and as I like Tokyo and as I like architecture, I was curious to go and see, and it was an open invitation. I looked at the toilets, I liked them, but I didn't feel like doing these featurettes, these documentary features on the architects and these creations. I realized there was something bigger behind the whole thing and behind that invitation, and I realized there was a movie to be made that could tell a bigger story. And I told these producers, let me do something else. Instead of four documentaries, let me tell a real story about that it would involve these toilets, but would talk in a bigger way about the sense of the common good that I see so well at work here in Tokyo. And it became a story about a man who cleaned these toilets. And they said, well, do you think you can do it in the same time it would take to shoot four documentaries? Yes, I said. <laughs> four times, four days, 16, I can do it. And so I wrote Perfect Days together with the Japanese co-writer. And you took just uh, two and a half weeks or so to film the movie? We only had these 16 days for these <laughs> initial amazing. four documentaries. And we did it. I mean, we had to reduce our locations. That is always the most time-consuming thing. So we had these toilets in these little parks in Shibuya. It was just one area of Tokyo. We knew where the man lived in another area on the other side of town. So he was always driving to work in the morning and the evening. So it was also a little road movie. And that was basically our locations. The film has such an appreciation of the mundane and the sense of commitment to the work that Hirayama has in this film as he cleans toilets throughout his day. And share a bit with with what you were trying to do here with showing the dignity and importance in the work that he did. Well, he's doing a work that is considered quite low in the social scale. And he's, in a way, a strange monk figure. He lives in a, lives a very simple life. But he lives a very content life, and he's happy with doing his work for others. And he lives a very exemplary life, I feel, now that we have that we all enter this post-pandemic time, and we all sort of should ask ourselves, how does life go on? Hirama gives a very specific answer how life could go on and how a different life could go on. I mean, not everybody needs to clean toilets, but we all have to ask ourselves, how do we live in a time that our planet faces so many problems? We're talking with filmmaker Vim Vendors. His latest film, Perfect Days, set completely in Japan. The film is in Japanese, though the star of the film, Koji Yakusho, has very few lines as the lead character of Hirayama. It's his face that does so much of the acting and does it beautifully. He's the winner of the Best Actor for his performance at the Cannes Film Festival. What led you to Koji Yakusho? He was the perfect man for this I knew his career. I knew all his all the films he had made ever since Shall We Dance and Babel. And I've seen samurai films of his and cop movies of his, and he was always good. And he had always has these amazing eyes and this empathy. So when I considered making a fictional story about this man who was doing a public service job, I said to the producers, Well, we need a great actor and I know one. <laughs> and they said, well, who? And I said, Koji Akush. And, and they said, well, let's give it a try. 
And then when Koji heard that I had this project, he said, if Wim is going to make this movie, I know there's no script yet, but I'm in. And so we did this in the fall, and he didn't have all that much time. He basically had three weeks in October, and we shot it in that short time frame. It's a terrific performance. Looking at the Tokyo of today, compare it, if you will, to nearly 40 years ago when you did the documentary Tokyo Ga, and then, of course, 70 years ago, going back to Tokyo's story in post-war Japan. Well, when I shot in 82, it was just two people. My DOP, at Lachman and me, we shot a true documentary in the streets. <laughs> we didn't even speak Japanese and didn't have a translator and it took us a while to actually be successful in our search of the traces of Yasujiro Ozu in Tokyo of 1982. He had died in 62, no, 63, and we were in 83. So 20 years later, I tried to make a film on his traces, and we did eventually find the cameraman with whom he had worked the last 20, 30 years of his life, and his actor with whom he had made made almost all of his 52 films, except for one, Ryo Shisho. So we were successful in the end, but it was a naive enterprise because we were really hopeless, the two of us, Eddie and myself as sound engineer. But we were carried by this love for Ozu's films, and we were lucky in the end. And Tokyo at the time was just at the beginning of becoming the science fiction city that it then did become in the end of the 80s or the 90s. Today, it's unrecognizable to the Tokyo of 1983, but I still like it, and it still has an incredible cityscape. It still is partly science fiction. It still has areas that are full of old low wooden houses, and next to it, high-rises, like this incredible tower, the sky tree, in the shade of which our man Hirayama lives. It's in almost every scene, <laughs> the sky tower. It's so, And it's a great juxtaposition with the very modest apartment that, that uh, Hirayama lives in. Music is a big part of Perfect Days, as it often is in your films. Hirayama drives while listening to cassettes of his favorite artists. Music was a huge part in Ry Cooter's score of, of Paris, Texas. You've done many music documentaries like Buena Vista Social Club. What does the music that Hirayama listens to in this film, What what is the meaning behind those songs? Well, when we wrote the script, my Japanese co-writer Takuma and I, we did put some songs into it because we felt it was part of the storytelling. I was a little worried that I put all my favorite songs and asked Takuma, am I not imposing my own musical taste on our Japanese hero? And he said, oh, no, no. The 70s was his youth, and I swear to God, he listened to the same things that you did. So we put in all these songs, and we strictly put it in because they were helping us to tell the story, and they were part of the story. We'll continue our conversation with filmmaker Vim Vendors, best known for his narrative movies Paris, Texas, and Wings of Desire. His newest, which is just out in theaters, Perfect Day, stars Japanese actor Koji Yakusho as a Tokyo restroom cleaner. We've been hearing about the genesis of the idea for the film shot in 16 days. We'll talk more with Vim Benders about his career and his films when we come back in just one minute on Film Week. 
It's Film Week on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with filmmaker Vim Venders, whose new movie, Perfect Days, is a slice of life, two hours in the life uh, of a man who cleans restrooms, beautiful restrooms, albeit, in Tokyo. And we get to see, as he goes about his work, the beauty that he finds in, in his everyday life. Vim, uh, he's he's an amateur photographer. He he uses uh, an old camera to take actual uh, photographs that are printed that he picks up at the at the camera store. Um, and share with us a bit about how you work with your cinematographer here to create the beautiful images, the things that take uh, the lead character out of the mundane routine nature of his life. The routine, even if it's mundane, and the word routine itself does have a bad aftertaste in our own lives, but we made his routine beautiful. We made his routine almost a daily ritual because he, like every good actor, um, he gets up in the morning and he has everything as if it was the first time and he loves his job and he loves doing it for others. And he lives in the moment. He has that capacity of living in the moment. Part of that is seeing little things that he likes. And he does like what the sun does when it shines through leaves and throws these beautiful um, light spectacles on a wall on the floor. The Japanese have a word for it, komorebi. And he likes to take pictures. My DOP and I try to adjust to his world. And as he lives in this little apartment, we wanted to be able to show his place well. And so if you shoot this in widescreen or cinemascope, you never see the floor and you never see how small it is. So we shot in a very old format of three to four, like very old movies like Yasujiro Ozu's movie at a long time. And also the toilets are so small. So that format, that old square format was perfect for us. And even if we shoot with modern uh, digital cameras, well, Franz Lustig uh, did an incredible job shooting the film, and I'm so glad you explained why you used the narrower aspect ratio to create the feel of, of what you were going for. And I'm also glad that you raised the issue of routine and the beauty of it, because I think for many of us who are people who follow routines to sort of, you know, keep keep our lives uh, on track and to be able then to enjoy some of the spontaneous things that happen. This is really, uh, it's a testament to uh, the, the, the comfort that comes from the routine. And is that part of what you were, you were attempting to relate in your character's life to the audience? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the word comfort between, because routine also gives his life structure and inside that structure, he has an amazing freedom to enjoy life. He has his routine and he gets up in the morning and he gets out of his house and he looks at the sky and laughs and he gets a cup of coffee from the vending machine and he drives to Tokyo listening to music and he does his job well. He's proud of doing it well and then he goes home and as he has a simple apartment with no shower or anything, he goes to the public bathhouse and then he takes his bike to his bar and has a drink and a little snack and goes home and reads, well, for instance, Faulkner. And <laughs> and so, and he's happy. He's happy with little, you see. He doesn't buy many books. He only buys the new books when he's finished Wild Palms. He buys another book. 
and also with his photography. He finishes that reel of film, and when he fi has finished it, he goes and brings it to develop and buys one more reel. <laughs> so, just as well as he only buys one book when he goes to his favorite bookstore, and he, of course he buys a used book. So he has very little, and with the very little he has, he has maximum pleasure. When he goes to sleep in the evening, you have a feeling, oh, I would love to have that life where I can go to sleep and feel this was a good day. Yeah, a minimalist life, uh, so so true. Your your previous film, Anselm, shows the artistry of Anselm Kiefer, and you've seen your documentaries have tremendous influence, Buena Vista Social Club, really leading to a re revival of appreciation in Cuban music. And, and I wonder what you hope happens when you're doing a documentary that profiles a specific artist, whether it's the choreographer Pina Bausch or, or Kiefer or others. What are you hoping will come, not just in the moment when the viewers are watching the film, but in the aftermath? Well, an appreciation for Cuban music was certainly the result of Buena Vista Social Club. And this was very, very beautiful music and almost forgotten by these old men who were still making the same music for their entire lives and were considered obsolete when we started making the movie. And in the end of the film, they're playing Carnegie Hall and New York were standing on the chairs of Carnegie Hall and they, and they were applauded like as if they were the Beatles. So films can tell people to appreciate something. And people did appreciate the, the fantastic, beautiful, emotional work of Pina Bausch and her invention, the dance theater. I didn't make this film for dance connoisseurs, but for people who didn't know her work yet and, and would then love it. And the same with Anselm. I think he's a tremendous painter, one of the most daring contemporary painters who who really thinks that everything can be painted from the universe to philosophy to history to religion to mythology to poetry. He is the painter who can paint anything and everything. And his art is a true experience. And so I made a film that allows the audience to enter into that experience, to appreciate, because I really make movies quite often, especially in my documentaries, like the one on Salgado's photography, Salt of the Earth, for people to get to know my greatest <laughs> pleasures, for instance. And I was so much taken by Buena Vista Social Club, by the musicians or by the art of Pina Bausch, and I wanted to share that. And filmmaking is a great way to share something yeah. you love. In closing, I want to ask you about being a member of what's called the German New Wave of the 70s. You emerge in the 70s, as does Werner Herzog, um, uh, Werner Fassbinder's films, which are very influential, and even though he passed very young, his films still carry uh, tremendous significance today. Um, this group of artists that that you're a part of, what do you see as as the influence and and anything of German culture that you think um, filmmakers from Germany of your generation have brought to the world? We were not really a school or the, the a wave. Every one of us had his own history and his it's his own cinematic tradition. And Werner Herzog, he. Loved German expressionist film films. Fassbinder loved American 
melodramas. I myself lo loved American action films a lot. Howard Hawks uh, or John Ford, well, that wasn't action films, but Western. So we all had our self-made uh, tradition and we weren't in, our other, in each other's ways. And maybe the beauty of the new German cinema was that it was an act of sheer solidarity. We we're helping each other and the success of the others helped each of us. And it became a very free kind of cinema that certainly was very influential in independent American cinema. I think some of our films were influential and did influence a whole generation of young filmmakers all over the world. You know, I think of Paris, Texas, because I, I love the American Southwest and have traveled it a great deal. And I see so many European tourists from Germany and Italy and elsewhere who seem to appreciate the American West often more than Americans themselves do. And I think of Paris, Texas, as much in that tradition as a European eye on this beautiful part of the United States that perhaps we don't appreciate as much as someone like yourself who brought fresh eyes to it. And thank you, Vim Vendors, for joining us on Air Talk. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Larry. All my best. Take care. Appreciate it. Perfect Days, the newest film from Vim Vendors in theaters now. From all of us at Film Week, thank you for joining us. Have a great weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.